Hey, up, Sassanacs. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanac Files. This week, we're discussing 506, Better to Marry Than Burn. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure to head over to follow the Sassanac Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander seasons six and seven, as well as any cast projects going on and whatever Diana Gabaldon has going on. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of season five, episode six, Better to Marry Than Burn. episode was kind of an interesting one. It is definitely not one of my favorites. In fact, it ties for one of my two least favorite episodes of season five. Not to say that it didn't have its good moments. I felt like it did have some good dialogue, some good character moments. I was especially fond of the Roger and Bree storyline. I felt like this episode went a long way towards redeeming their characters They were sorely in need of it. So in that aspect, I am glad that we got this, even though their storyline is kind of halfway fabricated. But overall, I'm glad to see that Roger and Brie are kind of finding their footing in the 18th century. It's been a long time coming. So in that regard, I did like this episode. However, there were some sore spots. So we'll get to those in a little bit. How I'm going to break up this episode this week because I felt like this episode followed three significant storylines and they circle around the main couples. I'll talk about Roger and Bree, and then I'll move on and talk about Jamie and Claire and end with Myrta and Jocasta. So first off, the Roger and Bree storyline. Like I said, I really did like that portion of this episode simply because we have not had enough of Roger having time to shine and doing the right thing for once. Like, holy crap, that was so good to see that he kind of shouldered this responsibility and took it on and said, no, we are not going to burn the field. Are you kidding? That's a stupid idea. (laughs) I love the line where he said to Bree, I'm done trying to outthink him. Because everybody's like, if Colonel Fraser were here, he'd know what to do. And and I'm sure Roger and Bree are both wondering that themselves. But at the same time, Roger is to the point where he's like, I have to be me and I have to make a decision and I have to be able to live with that decision. And you know what? I'm pretty damn awesome. So I'm sure I can come up with something, <laughs> not in so many words, but he's feeling like he can finally stand on his own two feet and make a decision. He's done feeling like he's constantly having to live up to the expectation of Jamie Fraser. He just needs to be himself. And I like that that's something that he has finally come to realize in this episode. And when he does step off of the platform and decide to free fall, he actually does a really good job of coming up with a solid solution to this problem. Whenever Roger meets with the tenants, I think, after they realize that there's a plague of locusts, which first off, I don't know about you guys. I don't know if it's a regional dialect thing, but these locusts 
are totally what I would call grasshoppers. So if you catch me calling them grasshoppers in this episode, please know that that is simply what grasshoppers around me look like. And I don't know what the difference is between a grasshopper and a locust. Maybe they're the same thing, but they certainly don't look like locusts to me. What we call locusts in Indiana look completely different from what these things look like, these insects. (laughs) So that was one thing about this episode that for me personally, I was just kind of like, huh? I don't, that's not a, whatever. (laughs) And so I don't dwell on it, but every time I hear them referring to these insects as locusts, I'm like, uh, I don't think so. (laughs) So drop the comments in this episode thread and let me know what you would call these guys. Would they be locusts or would they be grasshoppers? I'm curious to know. Anyway, so when these grasshopper locust thingies start falling out of the sky and eating everything in sight, Roger and Brianna realize that they have a problem on their hands. And so they meet with all the tenants and the tenants are freaking out and they're yelling at each other and they're talking intensely. We should burn the fields. We should do this. We should do that. And Roger is just like, hold the phone no, we don't need to burn the fields. Like, could you imagine if the wind shifted and burnt down your house? Where would that leave you? That would leave you without any food and without a dwelling. That sounds like a fantastic idea. So I love that Roger finally is embracing his role of authority and is like, no, this is not a good idea and we're not going to do this. I hate that Ronnie Sinclair and Evan Lindsay are kind of just sticking their noses up in the air and be like, well, if Colonel Fraser was here, he would know what to do. Like I said, I'm glad that Roger has finally grown a backbone. I've been really tired of him just bowing his head and doing what everybody else wants him to do just because it's it's easier, I guess. And finally, you see him in this episode grit his teeth and stand his ground and Tell them it's a terrible idea. (laughs) I love it. I'm glad. I'm so glad. And I'll say it over and over again. But I think at that point, he just knows that their idea is a terrible idea. He doesn't know what he would personally do. And so we get to the scene a few minutes later where they're walking out of the house, Roger and Brianna. And Roger is just like, "I, I don't know. And then he remembers this story that his father told him about locusts in the American West and how the settlers used smoke to repel them from the fields. So this is where Roger's knowledge of history starts to have a benefit. And I think this is a similar thing to what he was trying to accomplish in Brownsville, but it's a bit of a different story because in Brownsville, he's dealing with people and how he's perceived in dealing with that situation was more of him not standing up for his men. Whereas in this situation, he can use his book knowledge to enhance the situation, to make a better result. And I think that that is why in this circumstance, his knowledge of history worked a little bit better because it was more so him taking a set of circumstances and molding them and and coming out with a better outcome than what would have happened. Like using your know-how and knowledge to come up with a better way of doing things, I think is a lot different of a situation than what they had at Brownsville. And I think that's why it worked a lot better. 
that is part of how we are seeing Roger develop as a character because he's learning what works and what doesn't and in what situations he can apply certain knowledge that he's gained versus when he needs to step back and follow Jamie's lead. I was very proud of him. And I thought that Rick Rankin did a fantastic job because especially in that scene where Roger and Brianna are talking and he's like, yeah, and they would use smoke to cover the fields and drive the locusts away before they landed. And Bree just looks at him and she's like, okay, I hope there's more. (laughs) And Roger really is just like, okay, we're going to do this because it's going to work. At least I hope it's going to (laughs) work because I really can't take another failure. And then from there, they go into the development of bonfires using green brush to develop smoke and creating smudge pots, which have been around for ages, but have never been used for this purpose, and kind of bringing the community together to solve this issue, which is a great way to weave the theme of community in throughout this season. You've got them doing all of these domestic activities that I was talking about in the last episode, like candle making and cider making and dyeing wool and stuff. But you've also got these moments where the community comes together, bands together to solve a problem like the locust situation, like the situation we get in the season five finale. It really kind of shows what Jamie and Claire and now Roger and Bree are building, the life that they have now on Fraser's Ridge. Jamie's men are resistant to the idea of Roger as a captain, especially seeing how quote-unquote incompetent he is. So I think that they're really reluctant to place as much trust in him as they do in Jamie because he's not Jamie. But by the end of this episode, they're starting to realize that, okay, yeah, he's not McDo, but he does kind of know what he's doing and his thoughts and actions do have value and purpose. So I think it's all building that trust in him so that when we get to next episode, we can kind of see that people are really starting to value Roger. And I mean, Brianna has always been valued because she's Jamie and Claire's daughter, but Roger's finally starting to find his place just in time to get the rug ripped out from underneath him. Yay! (laughs) By the end, when all the locusts or grasshoppers leave, we are left with this successful moment, this great high for these characters. Brianna has put her skills to use in creating these fans for them to propel the smoke out, so she's feeling good about herself. Roger and Brianna are firing together on all cylinders. They are making things work as a team. And this is the version of Roger and Brianna that I really, really, really love. They've gone through a rough patch in this past season or so from pretty much all of season four. It was really rough. And I was actually watching Freedom and Whiskey with my mom last week sometime. And I turned to her after Claire leaves in Boston and it kind of ends with Roger and Brianna all curled up on the couch reading A Christmas Carol. And I turned to my mom and I said, I think this is where they really screwed up in the show by not following Brie and Roger all the way through season three. I know that that doesn't carry closely with the books, but Roger and Brie just kind of fall off the edge and people forget about them. And then they come back into the picture three or four episodes into season four, and they're not the same characters that we knew because so much time has passed, but we didn't follow them through that progression as characters, and so people just don't care about them. 
as much as they care about Jamie and Claire because they were introduced as secondary characters. And I really loved those characters in season three. And then by the time we get back to them in season four, the show just automatically wanted to throw them in as main characters instead of side characters. And that really screwed with the momentum of the show, I feel like. And I think that's where it lost a lot of people. I think that if the show was making a conscious decision to keep the audience engaged with all of our characters, they would have kind of somehow woven in Roger and Brie into the remainder of season three. And the back half of season three was kind of trash. So I don't really feel like there's a whole lot they could have done to make it worse. So I think that they would have been safe to include that. I know it's not what was in the books, but I think it would have been a smart decision. Anyway, Course correcting, back into season five, I felt like this Better to Marry Than Burn episode was one of the moments where we finally get Roger and Bree working as a team, connecting. Really, we start to see their marriage start to evolve. They're so proud of each other for their actions and for the fact that they saved the ridge and they even did it without Jamie and Claire there. Like, that's impressive. And the fact that they've earned all of these people's respect because of it really felt good and gratifying as a viewer to see. From there, we are going to move on to the Jamie and Claire portion of this episode. There's a lot to cover in the Jamie and Claire portion, but most of it is kind of little side things that I was like, oh, I got to make sure to mention that. And oh, I want to talk about that. The first time we see Jamie in this episode is when Jocasta is signing over River Run to Jemmy. And this moment in general, I get that it had to happen for the rest of the season to come out the way that it did with the whole Stephen Bonnet storyline. I get that. The problem is that it doesn't really make sense in the context of the story that the showrunners have created thus far. Because Do No Harm in season four was all about how Jamie and Claire couldn't stomach the idea of running River Run together. And that's why they left and they built Fraser's Ridge. I'm not so sure seeing this episode, whether that was a joint decision between Jamie and Claire, or whether it was more so Jamie making that decision because it's what made Claire happy. (laughs) It makes me second guess my initial impression of 402 when I see this episode, because Jamie's so happy to see that Jocasta has bequeathed River Run to Jimmy and that he's going to have this for himself and he's going to be the master of River Run. It confuses me as a viewer because you would think after everything that happened in Do No Harm with the hanging of Rufus and the behavior of Lieutenant Wolf and Farquhar Campbell and the mob that the Fraser clan wouldn't want to have anything to do with that whole mess. And now they're letting her give River Run to Jeremiah, Roger and Bree's son. Add on top of that, the fact that Roger in the Fiery Cross told Jocasta, I do not want your money. My wife does not want your money and my son will not have it. Cram it up your whole eye. That happened five episodes ago, guys. So... At what point does it make sense that Jemmy all of a sudden is coming into possession of this plantation and all of these slaves? It doesn't make sense to me. And the fact that if Roger and Bree knew that this was all going down, I doubt that they would both stay home on the ridge, even if Jemmy did have a cold. 
Like that doesn't make any sense to me. So that whole storyline, like I said, I get that they had to put it in place for where this season goes, but it really just kind of threw me for a loop. The other thing that's kind of a little off topic from the rest of the episode that I wanted to mention is we get murmurs of the Dr. Rawlings situation again, only this time it is ventured further than Brownsville. It is two women from the high society of North Carolina that are discussing the content of this broadsheet with the Dr. Rawlings recommends. And again, we get the opposing sides of it. We get one woman that's saying that she has said her husband will be sleeping in the guest room while she's ovulating. And you get the other woman that says, don't you think it's a bit sacrilegious to prevent a child if you have the ability to bear one? And Claire's like, well, perhaps women that don't have the ability to care for an infinite amount of blessings might want to prevent themselves from having more. (laughs) It's getting bigger and it's snowballing. Claire is seeing how far reaching this Dr. Rawlings accident has gone. We kind of do get a taste of that just thrown in like a dollop of whiskey and a glass of tea. (laughs) Just putting a little fuel on the fire, reminding the viewers that it's still out there. And then we don't get mention of it for a few episodes, but it's still out there circulating in the vast expanse of the Carolinas. From there, we go on into the meat and potatoes of this episode, which is becoming a thing, by the way. I feel like I say that every episode now, the meat and potatoes of the episode. (laughs) I don't know if that's a common thing that you guys say or if it's something that I've picked up from my grandparents because they use that phrase a lot. So again, if you have ever heard that phrasing before or have not, and it's new to you, please drop it in the comments for this episode thread. All kinds of things that I would like to know if you have heard before. (laughs) Okay, so when we pick up with Jamie and Claire after the signing of the River Run document and all of that, we get Jamie brooding on the porch. And he's brooding about the fact that it should be Myrta that Jocasta is marrying, not Duncan Innes. Which is an extreme change of pace from where we are at this point in the books because, as you know, the Myrta Jocasta thing is not a thing. And Duncan Innes is actually a close friend of Jamie's, so he's happy for Duncan and Jocasta. But instead, in the show, we have him brooding over the fact that he has to rub shoulders with the same men that would have Myrta dead if they could. That really bugs him. And, you know... I can't say that I blame him for feeling that frustration, but he kind of backed himself into a corner. I know that after the events of Do No Harm, he felt like he didn't really have a choice in the matter, that he couldn't be privy to being the master of River Run. Like, his conscience and Claire's conscience wouldn't allow that. And so that situation backed them into a corner where he felt like if he wanted a future he had to take Governor Tryon's offer and go find a stretch of land in the Carolina wilderness that he could make his own. In doing that, he put himself unequivocally on the side of the government and on the side of Governor Tryon. He put himself in Governor Tryon's back pocket, basically, and he can't go back on that now. Even knowing 
it was going to put him in a tough situation later and that eventually he was going to need to switch sides because he wasn't going to be able to stay on the side of the government if he wanted to end up on the winning side in the coming American Revolution. He didn't know that Murta was a regulator and that he was going to have to deal with these problems so soon and on such a personal level, but he knew that eventually it was going to be a really tough situation and he was going to have to pick a different side than the one that he was on. It's a very interesting conundrum that he's in, and he put himself there, and he realizes that, but that doesn't mean he's not bitter about it, (laughs) and I think we've all been there where we're just like, damn, if I had known, you know? And it does make me wonder if show Jamie would have chosen differently if he had known that Myrta was on the side of the regulators. I don't think that he would have chose differently because he knows that in the end, the American Revolution is going to happen and that the British are going to lose. So he doesn't want to put himself on the bad side of things in that regard. However, Claire and Roger and Brianna don't really know a lot about the regulator movement. And so he may not have known that being a regulator was not a good thing and that they were going to lose that argument All kinds of what-ifs. It's a very interesting train of thought. The possibilities are endless, guys. Anyway, he's rubbing shoulders with all of these guys that he doesn't really like because they're against Myrta. And then they walk up on the platform and there's Lord John, like the one red coat that everybody loves. (laughs) I love Lord John. I love David Barry. I'm so excited to get to meet David here in a couple weeks. I think he's just such a sweetie and he's so talented. But Lord John, God bless him, (laughs) is dancing with every woman in the province. And at the end of the dance, he steps away and these girls automatically flock over to him. And he says, excuse me, and turns (laughs) to Jamie and Claire like, oh, my God, save me. It's so funny because... He knows that he's a catch and he knows that he's an eligible bachelor and that women flock to him for a reason because he's handsome and he's got money. Unfortunately, he's gay and isn't interested in any of them, but it's cute. It's a funny situation. I'm really sad. There were a couple of scenes that he was in that got cut from this episode, which was unfortunate. I think that David Barry always does a great job with the scenes that he's in, especially the scene with Governor Tryon. I always love Lord John's clothes, especially the coat that he wears in the wedding, that burgundy velvet with the gold trim. It's so gorgeous. He has the best style, guys. Of course, would we expect anything different from Lord John? I don't think so. Claire and Jamie are talking with Lord John. And then Jamie says, speaking of not missing a chance to be worshipped, and there's Governor Tryon in the most hideous outfit I've ever seen. That vest and that coat. Oh my god, I hated it. I hated it. And I don't say that very often with this show because overall I think that the costumes are phenomenal, but did not care for that ensemble whatsoever, especially the green vest. Anyway, so they head over and they're talking to Governor Tryon and it all comes about that Governor Tryon is being offered the governorship of New York and they're moving. And I think Jamie's ears perk up and he's like, oh, 
So is this regulator business going to be done and over with? Like, are we good? (laughs) Is Murta safe? No, because Governor Tryon, snake that he is, has come up with this law that's an act for preventing tumultuous and riotous assembly prohibiting 10 or more men from gathering under certain circumstances. And then John sensing that Jamie's like, what the fuck? (laughs) Um, John steps up and says, the reasoning being, if men cannot gather, they cannot conspire. That is the thinking behind this riot act or whatever you want to call it. We get a little bit more detail when Jamie goes into the tent with Tryon and they're talking about the intention. And Tryon goes on to say that the act also allows him to indict any man that was said to have any involvement in the Hillsborough riots, which I think personally is a very slippery slope because it's literally any person that anyone puts as being in Hillsborough that day can then be arrested and tried as a traitor and hanged. There isn't any trial or gathering of evidence or anything. It's all based on hearsay. And like I said, that's a slippery slope. So I am not on board with something like that. And I'm pretty sure that these are things that actually happened in history. It would not surprise me at all to learn that that was true. So we've got all of this stuff going on with Governor Tryon, and Jamie is trying his hardest to be like, well, if you're leaving anyway, then surely a legacy of mercy is better. These men can be savage, but they're not godless. Give them a break, basically. And Tryon is saying that he doesn't want to leave the colony in a state of lawlessness and disorder, which I get, but also kind of feel like he's using it as a power trip to make himself look good. I kind of do agree with Jamie and Myrta on that front that I think he's really just doing it to do it. I don't really think that it's about leaving it in a better state for his successor. So the next big thing that we're dealing with with Jamie and Claire is Mr. Philip Wiley. And I thought that he was going to be one of those people that got cut out of the show because he was momentarily mentioned in America the Beautiful when Jamie and Claire were at the dinner party for the Lillingtons. So I thought that that was going to kind of be a one and done like the show so often does where they mention these characters And then they never bring them back again, even if they do tend to have a bigger role to play in the book series. It's more of just a nod to the readers and saying, okay, here's this person that you envisioned in this book, and this is what they look like. And they're at this dinner party, and then we'll never mention them again. I really honestly thought that that was going to kind of be the case with Philip Wiley, because that's really what happened. We didn't see him for the rest of season four or the first half of season five. And then there he is, and he is even more disgusting than he was when we first met him. (laughs) The guy is appalling. Like, he gives me the willies. I just can't with him. The way that he pursues Claire is just gross. Like, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. And he doesn't realize that she is sending him all of the signals. Like, get the hell away from me, bro. (laughs) And then, of course, she doesn't help her case by then switching tactics and being like, oh, this guy has something to offer and he's attracted to me. So let's see how we can get it to work in our favor. So I think that was a mistake on her part. And obviously, she realized that a little bit too late in the game. 
I don't think it was the best decision for her to try to take this all on by herself, but Claire is a very independent character, as we know, and she oftentimes thinks that she can handle situations that she can't, and that is one of those situations here that we're dealing with. So she goes to the stables with Wiley, hoping that she can get in better with Wiley so that they can corner Stephen Bonnet. When it all goes sideways, she shoves Philip Wiley into the manure pile. And I'm like, okay, that's hilarious. And I probably would have done the same thing. So can't really blame her for that. And Jamie's not upset with Claire at all, which kind of baffles me a little bit because I would have thought if he was going to be mad at her about something, it would have been her reckless decision to go off alone with a man. And he was in the books. He was pissed at her. In the show, it's fine. He's just worried for her welfare, which I find sweet. But then when they get in the argument later, it really kind of doesn't make as much sense. Like if tensions were already high because of what had happened earlier with Wiley and then Jamie had come to her and been like, hey, I want to go gamble. And by the way, can I have your two wedding rings? It would have made that much more explosive, I feel like. Granted, I am really, really, really glad to see Jamie and Claire have an argument of any sort because I feel like them not arguing a lot of the time makes their relationship less believable, I guess. And I talked about this a little bit in the last episode. We haven't really had an argument argument from Jamie and Claire since First Wife. I mean, we did have the disagreement slash Claire being mad at everybody, including Jamie, in the Deep Hearts Corps after the whole mess with Brianna's assault and Roger getting beaten up because of it. They had that entanglement, I guess, but it wasn't a full-scale argument. And then finally... A whole season later, we get the argument between Jamie and Claire about this. But it all comes back to Stephen Bonnet again. Damn that guy, right? Just send him straight to hell. As they're fond of saying in the books, do not pass go. Do not collect $100. Go straight to hell. (laughs) So the argument. Let's just face it. Jamie's kind of a douchebag when it comes to this argument. I cannot believe that he asked Claire to give up her wedding rings so that he could go and use them as a stake in a whist game. And yes, I get it. And this isn't something that's really covered in the show. So people are probably like, what the hell? In the books, as part of Jamie's character, like he's very good at cheating with cards. Like he's a card shark. He's very good at winning money. So now, instead of just playing to get by... He wants to put Claire's wedding ring, Frank's ring, as a stake in a high-stakes whist game. If I was Claire, I probably would have kicked him in the balls. Like, really? I think that some people think that it's Frank's ring. It's not like he was asking for his ring. Why is it such a big deal? Frank was still Claire's husband, and she still loved him. That would be like Frank asking Claire to take Jamie's ring off. He never did that. Ever. He never did that. So even though Jamie's not planning to lose it, it's still a card game. You're still gambling. There is nothing saying that you're not going to lose that ring. The last time that Claire was potentially going to lose that ring was when Stephen Bonnet tried to take it from her and she swallowed it. And Claire makes sure to bring that up in her argument. Like, really? 
You're going to lower yourself to that level. And Jamie's like, well, that's not what it's about. It's just a stake. I'll give it back. I'm not going to lose it. And she's saying, there is nothing guaranteeing to me that you are not going to lose this ring. And he will not give it up. And I love that Claire finally says to Jamie, who are you doing this for? And he looks at her and says, well, what do you mean? And she says, answer the question. And he says, I'm doing this for Brie, for our daughter, you know, and Claire knows, no, you're not. You're doing it for yourself, you asshole. You're doing this for you. And don't you lie to yourself and don't you dare lie to me about the fact that you're doing this for yourself. You're doing it for your pride and because you screwed up, not to avenge Bree's honor. That sticks in Jamie's craw. Like that is a knife to his gut because deep down, yes, he knows that's why he's doing it. He needs that redemption and he needs that satisfaction of seeing Stephen Bonnet dead. But he doesn't want it thrown in his face. And I think that he's kind of lulled himself into this false sense of security that Claire didn't know him that well to understand that that's what was motivating him in this endeavor. And she's like, you know what? Fine. If you're going to do it, do it. But you can take your ring too, because I'm not wearing your ring without Frank's ring. (laughs) And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Like, I totally would have done that too. Like, okay, you want one ring? You know what? Just take both of them. And I'm walking away. (laughs) By the time everything is said and done and we come around to the reconciliation scene, I get the anger. And then Jamie's been drinking on top of that. Instead of coming straight to find Claire and give her her rings back and make amends, he went off and was drinking with God knows who. So that was another annoying point, and that really would have ticked me off too. So as if Claire wasn't angry enough, now Jamie is coming to find her and he's drunk. Oh, goody. That accumulates in a couple of stupid drunken lines he has about Claire being a woman and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I know I'm a woman, dude. And sometimes you just think too much from your time. This guy is not helping himself at all. Like, this is not one of Jamie's finer moments. (laughs) I will admit. And then all of a sudden, this argument turns into angry sex. Okay, this is where this episode lost a lot of people, right? I am not going to stand here and say that I liked this scene. I absolutely abhor this scene. I feel like it was poorly written. I feel like the actors didn't feel like it was in character or well-written, and they didn't want to do it, but they did it because there was that added pressure that they thought the fans would want to see this scene, that it was a favorite tentpole moment, as Matt Roberts would call it. And to a certain extent, yes, I do agree. It was a tentpole moment. It's something that fans of the books wanted to see. I will be the first to admit it. It was one of my favorite parts of The Fiery Cross. However... It kind of defeats the purpose of including a scene from the books that fans want to see if you're not going to put it in there like it's in the books. And I'll say it again. If you can't put it in there like it is in the books, just forget about it. We don't want to see something that is completely botched and not at all like we're expecting it to be. And we sure as hell don't want to see it if it's poorly written and the actors don't want to do it. Like you can tell the scene was a hot flipping mess from the very beginning. I get the tension between the actors, and I get the argument, and I think that we could have honestly skipped the sex altogether. The line where it's like, look down as I take you. I'm like, what the frick is that? 
seriously? Like, look down at what? The three petticoats she's wearing? <laughs> like, there is nothing to look at. And in the books, this was a scene where Claire had been sleeping in a separate bedroom and she needed some air. So she came down and all she was in was her shift. And Jamie whisked her off to the stables and they had this epic, really fiery love scene. And it made sense because she wasn't wearing anything and she could look down and watch him as he took her. (laughs) There's a big difference. You can't have the dialogue if it doesn't match what's happening on the screen, people. So I don't know who wrote this episode, but I really hope they don't come back in season six (laughs) if this is how they're going to adapt this. Like, it just doesn't make sense. So that's my rant on this episode. I didn't like the sex scene. I think this is probably the only sex scene between Jamie and Claire in the series so far that I was just like, um, huh? It just doesn't make sense. Anyway, okay. It makes my head hurt. I know it made a lot of you have a headache as well because I asked about it in this week's listener comments thread. So we will get to that shortly. However, I want to talk about the quote unquote pillow talk of this scene first because it really was great. The sex scene was terrible, but the scene afterwards was fantastic. Jamie and Claire have the best discussions after sex. They really do. Jamie admits that Claire was right. He wasn't doing any of what he did for Brie. If we want to go exactly with it, he says, you were right, Claire. I'm not doing this for Brie. I'm doing this because I want to see the monster that hurt our daughter dead for no other reason, but I need to see it done. Is that so wrong? And Claire says, no, it's not wrong. Like, I get it. I 100% get it. I need to see that justice done too. It's a great reconciliation moment where he realizes that how he went about it may not have necessarily been the right way to go about it. They were both attempting the exact same thing. They wanted to corner Stephen Bonnet. And I think in the end, they achieved their goal. It's just they really butted heads over how to accomplish that goal. In the end, Alexander Malcolm is back in business And we are moving forward with the attempt to catch Stephen Bonnet and make him pay for what he did. Everything that he did from the murder of Leslie to the rape of Brianna to the terrorization of Claire and Jamie. The list is growing with the offenses that Stephen Bonnet has committed. And so I totally understand their motivations in wanting to exact revenge on him. It's just like Jamie wasn't really thinking clearly when he decided to go about this the way that he did. The last topic of discussion is going to be Myrta and Jocasta. And I know that this is a contentious subject, so I won't spend a god-awful amount of time on it, but... The opening scene of this episode, before we even get a date stamp on it, we're automatically aware of the fact that we are back in Scotland, even if it's just for a little five-minute scene. And it was so good. The gorgeous rolling hills of the Great Glen. Oh, man. It's so beautiful. I love it. I think that the opening scene of this episode helped us to understand Jocasta as a character because she's kind of a mystery to the show watchers. There's not a lot of background information that we have been given about her character. So to get this visualization of being come upon by redcoats while they are attempting to escape Scotland after Culloden and the gold being discovered and their daughter being shot, 
it was really tragic. And for Jocasta to have that image, among others, as something that she replays in her head over and over again, because she doesn't have her sight anymore, but she can still see that happening. And her daughter laying there in the mud as they drive away. Man, that is so tragic. So god awful. I hate it for her. And the fact that her other daughters died similarly tragic deaths, she wasn't around to see it, but that she regrets that. And she thinks that that's why she lost her sight, because she didn't look back at her daughters and their loss and everything that happened to them. She went to America with Hector and she never looked back. So she went blind. And that's so tragic. I feel absolutely horrible horrendous for her character because man can you imagine first off losing all three of your grown daughters two of which had families so all of your grandchildren in this post culloden terror with the duke of cumberland and all of his troops and i couldn't help but think whenever i was watching all of this happen with jocasta about where our other characters were at this point in history because we've seen This is right after the Battle of Culloden, and so we've got Jamie either laying on the field bleeding to death or being in that cabin or barn or whatever you want to call it, listening to all of his friends being executed. So that's where Jamie's at, and you've got Claire who is either laying in the stone circle sobbing because she had to leave Jamie and now thinks he's dead, or in the hospital meeting Frank again for the first time in three years. This is a time of violent upheaval for most of our characters, and I feel like we keep coming back to this particular time for a lot of our characters because it was a turning point. And in the books, when Mrs. Graham is reading Claire's palm in Outlander, the first book, she talks about how Claire's lifeline is all interrupted. I think she may even mention it in the show. But in the book, she elaborates that the reason her lifeline is showing all bits and pieces is because of all of the war and violence and personal tragedy that has befallen Claire. And so I just keep thinking about that, how your lifeline literally restarts every time something tragic happens to you, like you just take a left turn and start over. That's what Jocasta did in this moment. She went to America and she watched as her husband took that gold that was responsible for killing their daughter and built a palace. All these riches that they have around them. And she lived in luxury the rest of her days, but she lost her daughter for it. And so she's held on to that grief for all of this time. And now, yes, she's in love with Myrta. And if Myrta had told her in the fiery cross when she gave him the opportunity to, if he had told her, don't marry Ennis, I love you, wait for me. If he had taken that time to tell her that, this would be a very different set of circumstances. But instead, we're left with a situation where he said nothing. All he said was, I won't stand in the way of your happiness. And so she went forward with marrying Duncan. Because he was afraid that she wouldn't say yes. And that's a very human thing to feel. He doesn't really have anything to offer her but himself. So I can understand both of them. And that's the tragic part of this storyline is how it ends. And despite the fact that I'm not fond of the Myrta situation, and I know that some people aren't fond of Myrta and Jocasta together, 
I actually really loved the scene, the bedroom scene between Myrta and Jocasta, because whoever the director is in this episode, they just let Duncan LaCroix and Maria Doyle Kennedy go. They just let them go. And they did a phenomenal job with this scene. The beginning scene that we get with Jocasta where Duncan comes in and he gives her the pillow with the lavender. And he's talking about how the name Innes comes from the Gallic and it means an island formed by two streams. And that he hopes with time and then she cuts him off. She didn't want to hear it. And I feel really bad for Duncan because Jocasta is clearly in love with Myrta. And she's only marrying Duncan because he's the convenient choice, is how I really felt at the beginning of this episode. But when you get the scene with Myrta and Jocasta at the end, it makes more sense because he asks her, why in God's name would you choose to grow old with a man like Ennis? And she replies, I've long since grown old, Myrta. You can't fault me for wanting to spend the time that I have left with a good man, a man whose only cause will be my happiness. Because Jocasta has lived her entire life in the shadow of other men's ambitions. Her husbands have always had an agenda. Hector's love of the Jacobite cause cost her everything. Everything. It was the reason she had to leave her home. It was the reason that her daughters died. Her entire family was wiped out when the Jacobite cause failed. So when she looks at Myrta, she sees the exact same thing. And that's what she tells him when she says why she can't marry him. She says, I ken what sort of man you are. And he replies, and what sort of man is that? She says, the sort of man who would lose everything for what he believes in. The sort of man I swore I would never give my heart to again. Because she can't afford to lose anything else. Even if it means living the rest of her life in a loveless marriage, at least she won't have to go through the complete and utter shattering of her heart ever again. I can't blame this poor woman for making that personal decision. Yes, it's breaking her heart to let Myrta go, but she's not going to lose everything all over again because Myrta puts his cause of the regulator movement above Jocasta. And that in and of itself just makes me want to burst into tears because this is an epic moment and it's a completely fabricated relationship. It's not in the books, but damn it, like it's so terrible. So yeah, I had to discuss this moment because I felt like the actors did a phenomenal job and for the characters themselves as we know them in the show, it is just heartbreaking. So with that... I will 100% fully admit that Maria Doyle Kennedy is performance of the episode for me because MDK was on her A game this episode. She was amazing. It was amazing to see her actually acting as a person that can see in that opening scene that we got. It was kind of a mind warp for a minute. I was like, something's different. Something besides the fact that she's got color in her hair, something is different. And then I'm like, oh, of course. She has her sight. So that was good. But then all the scenes, particularly the ones with Duncan, where they just played off of each other and you could see her heart just shattering. It was it was great. It was so good. So performance of the episode goes to Maria Doyle Kennedy. 
And then quote of the episode is a Roger quote. It's when they're discussing the plague of locusts and he says, you know, when your father left me in charge, I thought I might have to mend a fence or wrangle the odd runaway cow. But no, I get a biblical plague. And it is so, so perfect for Roger's character because Diana loves to pick on him. The most terrible things in this series happen to Roger and it's literally like she picks on him. She just uses him as her personal punching bag, him and Jamie. But as Roger comes more into the forefront as a main character, especially in the books, he really gets beat up on a lot. And season five is 100% a great illustration of that because a lot of crap happens to Roger. And so Yes, of course. You can't just let Jamie go to Jocasta's wedding and everything's hunky-dory and it all goes smoothly. No, of course. We get a biblical plague. (laughs) Yes. Alrighty. Well, that about wraps up my thoughts on 506 Better to Marry Than Burn. But, as always, I put it out to you guys to let me know what you thought on 506. So, without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Regina Geisert says the stable scene could have been done way better. It's like there was a disconnect between the script writers and costumers and nobody looked at both and said, hold up, this dress isn't going to work with this dialogue. Something needs to be changed here. I find the flashbacks help me understand Jocasta more. Not that it makes me agree with her actions, but I understand where she's coming from. Myrta returning to River Run made me feel sad for both him and Jocasta. You know, she really wanted him to tell her that he loved her and would do anything for her when she told him about Duncan's proposal. He fought those feelings and instead of telling her, but also letting her know then and there that he wasn't going to give up the fight for freedom and justice from British rule, he came back to tell her a little too late and it felt more like his return gave her a bit of false hope that he came back to profess his desire to be with her and do whatever she wanted him to, including denouncing the regulators. And that just isn't who he is. Roger taking charge on the ridge was fantastic, but it would have been nice if it had been acknowledged by Jamie. It often feels like he's purposefully given the raw deal so watchers don't like him because if Jamie doesn't even like him, then I'm betraying Jamie by liking him. So Roger definitely needs some justice done for his character. Yeah, I do feel like Jocasta had kind of made up her mind by the time Myrta showed up. It was too late, and I hate that Jamie literally asked them to put off the wedding because he knew that Myrta might show up, and that Myrta finally decided to reveal his thoughts and his feelings, and even at the end, he says, I love you, Jocasta McKenzie. The world may change, but that will never change. You know, I don't think Myrta has ever loved anyone the way that he loved Ellen until later in life when he came to know Jocasta and to let himself feel that again and admit those feelings. And then like, it's just so sad that he waited so long. And like Regina said, if he had told her in 501, the situation never would have happened. But I don't really know what they would have gained from that experience because it wouldn't have done anything but throw River Run into the line of fire from the government because Myrta was never going to give up his regulator cause. And that's exactly what Jocasta realizes. Like, he cares way too much about a cause that he believes in to ever give it up, even if he does love Jocasta. 
Joanna Beard says, I've always tried to keep the show and the books separate, but this episode really sealed the deal. When we got the brief look and realized the stable scene was going to be included, I was beyond excited. After watching it, I wish they had left it out. Every time I watch it, I just shake my head and feel so embarrassed for Kat and Sam. Worst sex scene in the series by far. The two of them did the best they could with what they were given. 100% agree. Like, it was a terribly written scene, and they did the absolute best they could with what they were given. But that just goes to show that if the script isn't there, it doesn't matter how talented your actors are, you're not going anywhere. Last comment of the day is from J. Mardell Stennett. She says, I love Roger Mack's command of the ridge when the locusts hit. Philip Wiley is just gross. He literally makes my skin crawl. I think the Jocasta flashbacks help understand her personality a little more, but I find it unbelievable she'd leave her dead child in the road. It just doesn't ring true. The sex scene is meh. The utter devastation Claire goes through when Jamie asks her for Frank's ring rankles me too. Jamie is very rarely cruel, but he insists on taking it from her and it's just awful. I don't think that it was unbelievable for Jocasta to leave Morna on the road like that because first off, what was she going to do? They can't take the dead body with her and they can't go back and they can't take the time to bury her. Plus, she was in shock. I mean, there wasn't really a lot of fight in her because she was just so shocked at what was happening. So that was believable to me. And I agree with you about the argument where Jamie insists on taking Claire's rings because you're right, Jamie is rarely cruel in the show. He does have his moments in the books, and there is one moment in book nine that I'm particularly thinking of that I'm just like, yeah, (laughs) that's the Jamie that we're seeing in this episode. But yeah, the fact that he insists on taking it, like I said, it really was a douche move. I was not okay with that. It made me mad at him too. Alrighty, guys, that about wraps up our episode for the day. As far as Outlander news goes, we are getting more and more content this week. They did a little show snippet called Seasons 1 through 5 in 60 Seconds and had all the cast members kind of trying to explain the plot of five seasons in 60 Seconds. And we got a glimpse of David Barry as Lord John. So... He's back, everybody. I mean, we had a pretty good idea that he was back because there were some leaked pictures from set, but it was so good to see him. This was the first time that we've actually seen Lord John in any sort of promotional material for season six. So it's been confirmed by stars, which is exciting. As I'm recording this, I have less than a week until I venture to Seattle for Outlandish Vancouver, so that's exciting. It's proving a bit stressful at the moment because they've thrown all of these COVID test restrictions on top of us, and COVID tests are pretty much impossible to find right now, so we're having to try to schedule our rapid test appointments around flight times, and it's just proving to be a little bit of a nightmare. So getting through that, it's stressing me out big time because I ordered an at-home test kit to do on Thursday before I fly out on Friday. And then I got a notice today that the shipping has been delayed and it's not expected to arrive at my house until after I'm already in Seattle. So I'm having to come up with plan B, C, D, E, F, G, etc. I'm trying not to stress about it. I know I probably shouldn't stress as much as I am, but it's getting at me. It's eating at me, guys. 
So anyway, I'm sure it will be great once I get there and everything. I'm sure it'll be wonderful. I'm planning on doing a live from Seattle to update you guys on any news that I get regarding season six and seven, as well as any fun little details I want to share with you guys. So look for that. That'll be sometime next weekend between January 21st and January 23rd, sometime in there. And then do not forget that on February 6th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Angela and I are doing a Facebook Live on TSF Obsassnacks. That's my Facebook page for all of you Obsassnacks out there. We're doing a Facebook Live to discuss everything about Season 6 that we know so far. That will be the one-month-to-go mark, and we wanted to do something special to discuss everything we've learned since the last time we did a Season 6 Live, which was back in, like, June when they were still filming. Actually, I think it may may have even been May because I don't think that they were done filming yet at that point. So... We've learned a ton about this coming season since then, and of course, we will talk about our book knowledge and how we think that that's going to play with what we have learned is going to happen in the season so far. Hopefully, we will have a trailer coming out in the next week or so. That'll be super exciting to discuss as well. We're very excited to get on live. Make sure to join TSF Obsassnacks. If you are not already a member, it's 100% free. You just need to go on, fill out all three, there are three, admission questions, plus agree to follow the rules. If you do all four of those things, someone, an admin or myself, will approve your request to join the group. Please make sure to do that by 6 p.m. on February 6th. Otherwise, I cannot guarantee that your request will be approved before we go live in the group. With all of that out of the way, I hope you guys have a good couple of weeks. Like I said, I'm going to try to do a live next week, but then I will not be doing another podcast until mine and Angela's live on February 6th. And from there, we will be into the final run, three full episodes before season six starts. So very exciting stuff. It's ticking down. Also... On a more personal front, my book, Downforce, is finally available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, etc. So make sure to pre-order a copy if you like romance novels. It's a sweet with heat genre, so it's not too overly steamy, but it is not a completely clean romance either. There is language, there is sex. If you like Outlander, I'm sure you're okay with that as well. So head on over and order that if you are a reader. It's not too long of a book. I think it's 417 pages from start to finish. So it's manageable, especially if you're used to those thousand plus page Outlander books. Make sure to go on your Goodreads account if you have one and click want to read. And after that, I would love, love, love and so appreciate if you guys would leave a review for me on Amazon, Goodreads, Book Funnel, whatever you guys use. That would be much appreciated. And with all of that, I'm going to sign off of here for this week. You guys stay safe out there and I'll chat at you from Seattle next week. Bye.